From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, NYU professor Ruth Ben-Ghiat joins me to discuss Representative Don Young's remarks suggesting that armed Jews would have lessened the severity of the Holocaust. She also offers her thoughts on the recent Italian election results that's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to the public morality. What else is the shotgun? And then long rifles? Then slingshots, bows and arrows? How many, many times, how many millions of people were shot and killed because they were unarmed? 50 million in Russia because their citizens were unarmed. How many Jews were put into the ovens because they were unarmed? That was Representative Don Young recently speaking to a group of constituents in his home state of Alaska. It seems public officials cannot resist the temptation to make comparisons to the Holocaust to justify their position. Representative Young suggested that armed Jews would have lessened the severity of the Holocaust. One would think that comments about the greatest crime of the 20th century committed by the greatest criminal regime would at least require judicious remarks. But politicians continue to go to this well without much thought given to the magnitude of their comments. And usually, it is only after public condemnation that they offer a non-apology apology, complete with the hackneyed phrase, I apologize if my statements were taken out of context. The irony is palpable. They are unaware that it was because their comments were taken in context that they must now offer their mea culpa. As of this broadcast, Young has not offered any such apology. The point here is not to offer historical comparisons to the Holocaust should be forbidden, but shouldn't such comments bear some resemblance to actual historical events? Given the Holocaust is a hallmark of evil personified, Perhaps it is too important to be used simply to strengthen one's position on the issue du jour. Joining me to discuss Young's comments and to offer thoughts on the recent Italian election, we are pleased to once again have Professor Ruth Ben-Ghiat. Professor Ben-Ghiat teaches at NYU. She is an author, contributing columnist to CNN, and an expert on authoritarian form of government. Professor Ruth Ben-Ghiat, welcome back to The Public Morality. Thank you. It's nice to be here again. You know, I want to begin this conversation uh, with uh, Representative Young's remarks. When you you hear someone offer, as in the case of uh, Representative Young, that armed Jews could have thwarted some of the impact of the Holocaust, what, what goes through your mind? 
several things. First of all, it's 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 such a, an egregious misreading of history. Um, second, that the response of um, gun rights activists to everything is always put more guns into the situation. And it's also ironic that um, the the setting was uh, a conversation about how to prevent gun violence in schools after Parkland, and he shows such a disregard for the basics of history education. Now, in your scholarship uh, regarding authoritarian regimes, wasn't access to firearms something that they really restricted, or, or am I misreading history there? No, the joke is that all of these people who uh, often overlap with um, you know, admirers of past regimes and present right-wing movements, you know, they, they're forgetting conveniently that uh, regimes severely restricted firearms. The last thing they wanted was individuals uh, going around with guns who could uh, assassinate the hated leaders. So, you know, they, they institutionalized their militias and things like that, but our country is very unusual. There isn't probably been a place in a time in history where there's been so many individually privately owned guns we're very that's the real american exceptionalism is our is our attitude and ownership of guns so uh, in other places when when ben carson too had the same line when he said oh dictators always take guns well they don't because in the first place there weren't that many guns in circulation and you know, if if they if they confiscate weapons, it's it's extremely rare, and it's only from individuals who have proven to be dangerous already. No, no. It seems to me I, I don't have uh, data to support this, but at least um, in the public discourse, that the less an individual knows and understands and appreciates. Uh, the Holocaust, and I would say ostensibly uh, authoritarian regimes, the more apt there are to, they are to offer a counterfactual analysis. I wonder how you saw that. Yes, totally. You know, part of the issue of, of saying that the Jews could have defended themselves if they had more guns, <coughs> excuse me, is it, it conveniently sidesteps the actual uh, causes of the Holocaust, which were, you know, state-sponsored racism, popular hatred of Jews that translated into approval for these policies by putting the whole thing on, well, it's almost like it puts the burden on Jews. If Jews had had guns, they would have defended themselves. Because they didn't defend themselves, they're somehow partly responsible for what happened to them. Hmm. And I guess I wonder, uh, get your take on this, but in a strange way, is, is is part of our ignorance, I, I mean, I think back um, the last three presidents, whether it was George W. Bush, President Obama, now President Trump, everybody gets uh, compared, has been compared to Hitler. So I was wondering, is part of the ignorance uh, that because we don't have uh, anything comparable to what happened during the Nazi regime that we're even more apt to make ignorant statements. I, I, I'm not trying to defend it, but I just wonder yeah. what you thought about that. It, it Maybe, but it doesn't really hold up because, um, for example, now, because, uh, y you know, there was a new poll in 
the lead up to the Italian elections that happened yesterday about um, attitudes of Italians to Mussolini. And so they certainly had an experience in their past. They had a 20, over 20 year regime, twice as long as Hitler's. And, you know, large numbers of, of people um, believe, have, have a positive opinion of Mussolini. It's true that in our country we haven't had an authoritarian regime, and so people are perhaps less likely to see the warning signs. But we're also, in, unfortunately, in a moment where all over Europe, and not only in Europe as we see what's going on in China, um, there's a lot of revisionism and encouragement to forget what happened in the past. Look at Poland. The government passed this you know, very controversial law that made it a crime to say that Poles were complicit in the Holocaust. And this is an attempt, which is going on in various ways across Europe, to whitewash their own past. And so if you don't, if you, if you don't have, uh, if you say that your country wasn't guilty and didn't commit those crimes in the Holocaust, then you can uh, commit a new version of them again with a clean conscience. And this is a very serious kind of European phenomenon that's going on. So, you know, the answer is perhaps with regard to America, but we see what's happening even when in countries that had a past. And you, you mentioned the uh, the recent Italian election, and we're going to get to it in a moment. But but just on that, um, I believe one of the uh, parties, center right parties, ran on a slogan, and I'm paraphrasing it: um, "I want the Italy that my grandfather had," or something to that effect. Is that is that um, part of that revisionist? Absolutely. Um, the the idea that you know you need a strong man in charge. Uh, the idea that the, the classic thing is that the dictator made the streets clean, the trains run on time, it was safe back then. And this is very compelling for certain people, but it, in order to believe it, it means that you have forgotten or you've decided not to learn uh, all of the violence that's necessary to produce those <clears throat> on-time trains and clean streets. Where are the homeless people? Where are the poor? Where are the racial others? Well, often they're sitting in camps. They're in prisons, and no one wants to think about that. I, I, I guess when I hear you say that, it, it, it would be equivalent to asking an African-American to go back to the way things were in the, in the 50s, particularly in the southern region of the United States. Yeah, and, and, and look what's been going on in regard to that. There's, there's, there's a lot of the whole thing about Civil War monuments and the, the you know, voter suppression tactics and all of the offensive comments uh, about African-Americans from, you know, people in the GOP and the Trump administration. There's, there's this, and Trump himself, whose kind of mentality seems to be somehow rooted in the, almost in the 1950s, blend of the 50s and the 80s, you know, and in any way, very dated. Um, and we, we are seeing a parallel thing, and so it's not surprising that the same there's this kind of sometimes informal alliance between people like Viktor Orban in Hungary and this one of the new stars of Italy, Matteo Salvini of the League Party, very racist. He admires Donald Trump. They all admire one another, and they have mutual uh, goals, which involve um, a kind of nostalgic vision of the past. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with NYU professor, author, CNN analyst, and expert on authoritarianism. 
Professor Ruth Ben-Ghiat. And Professor Ghiat, you, you have a, a book coming out, and uh, would you like to give us a, a quick teaser on this project? Sure. It's called Strong Men, How They Rise, Why They Succeed, and How They Fall. And it goes, it's a kind of history of the strongman figure from, from the first modern strongman Mussolini up to Donald Trump. And it's intended as a kind of uh, handbook to, to let us understand the mechanisms, the strategies, the trickeries these people use to get to power and stay in power and what's worked in the past to get rid of them. I also have a feeling that you you will be on the public morality specifically talking about this book. I, I have that feeling. I can that, see that would be that would be a pleasure. I can see your future. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, since we have you on the broadcast, I, I would like to turn our attention um, to the recent Italian election and just get some of your overall thoughts. First of all. Sure. Well, you know, a lot of people think, well, maybe Italy doesn't matter. It's not in the news that much, and. Um, these elections are very significant because um, Italy is known to have had, you know, the first fascist dictator. But it also was a country with the Western Europe's most robust and largest left um, for over a century. And <clears throat> this election is uh, a historic loss for the center left that's called the Democratic Party. Um, and it is a protest vote. It shows that populist parties, like this kind of five-star movement, which got the most votes of anyone, and rabid right-wing anti-immigrant parties like the League um, have, have, are replacing uh, support for the left. So Italy is kind of having the shift rightward that we've seen in other countries in Europe. But it's more significant because Italy has the fourth largest economy in, you know, in, in the European Union, and it really was a mainstay of the left for uh, over 100 years. And uh, at the time of uh, this, we're doing the, this broadcast, the election results are not in. But based on what we know, um, talk about what you perceive to be some possible next steps. So... Most likely, uh, there's going to be what the mainstream media calls a center-right coalition, but I'm, uh, I have an a, a article coming out with CNN this afternoon <clears throat> calling it a right-center coalition. And, and because, you know, several of the parties uh, got votes by being very anti-immigrant, it's unlikely that the, the liberal Democratic Party will e perhaps even be in the coalition, which would be historic for Italy. And what I'm most worried about is the, um, the kind of violent rhetoric that's been used by, um, for example, the, the, the leader of the party that used to be called the Northern League, and it was very anti-Southern, because in Italy the Southerners uh, were considered by Northerners almost like a people of color. There was a huge, uh, there's always been a lot of prejudice and racism, kind of internal racism. But now um, immigrants are the new target, um, the new p people of color, so they've dropped the Northern and they're just the League. But Matteo Salvini has, has he goes around saying that, you, that Italy needs, quote, a mass cleansing of immigrants and criminals, which are the same thing for him. He said this over and over. He said in uh, 2016, uh, Italy needs a, quote, controlled ethnic cleansing of immigrants. 
So now this person, uh, his party got a, a historic high, 17% of the vote, but that's way up from before, and he's going to be included in the government. So this is, this is very concerning. And say a little more, if you will, about Salvini. You've mentioned him twice, and, and didn't he just have Steve Bannon in the campaign right before the election as well? Yes. Uh, I didn't mention that in my CNN article because I don't really want to give Bannon more publicity because he tries to be a kind of sage of the populist right. Um, but yes, he went to Rome specifically to offer his support to Salvini, and he is actively working to, in, you know, to kind of increase Italy's inclusion in this kind of right-wing populist network that I mentioned before. Um, so yes, that circle is closing. And, and I would add that on that note, the fact that uh, at the recent conservative conference that's known as CPAC, um, the Republicans invited Marine uh, Le, Pen? Le Pen, who is the niece of the head of the very racist Front National Party in France, to speak. And they had her speak right, I don't remember if it was right before or right, be right after our Vice President uh, Pence. And this was, this is a very deliberate positioning of Le Pen. Um, and the first time someone like that has been invited to that conference. And so uh, this Steve Bannon there to help with Salvini and Le Pen there uh, right next to Pence and with photo ops uh, to prove it, the, the Republican Party is kind of positioning itself um, as part of this right-wing racist populist international network. Now the, now the league um, is not to be confused with the effort that was led by former uh, Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, so the main players are, you have the League, um, which, which is, again, a, this kind of used to be a northern separatist you know, party. Now it's just a, it's trying to be the, the main anti-immigrant. He's only 44, Salvini, and in that way he's a big difference to 81-year-old Berlusconi. And one interesting thing is Berlusconi's uh, Forza Italia, which is named after a soccer chant, it didn't do as well as the league. And Berlusconi is 81. He's tried to modernize, but he's actually seen in this new right-wing climate as too moderate for some people. And that tells you everything, because he doesn't want to exit the European Union, for example. He's certainly been just as racist. He's called for mass deportations of immigrants. Um, but he is, on economic and social issues, he's not quite as extreme as some of the other parties. And so he counts now as a center-right uh, movement uh, or force in Italy. So those are, those are the – and then the center-right coalition had a small, extreme, neo, overtly neo-fascist uh, party in it called Brothers of Italy, which got about 5%. And if they're included, that's a real statement, because these people are unreconstructed unre fascists. Um, so that's the main panorama. And then the five-star movement, which got the most votes of any single party, was started by this comic, Beppe Grillo. And they're very eclectic. They're pro-environmental. They're pro-internet, like democracy. They have this myth of, ma of kind of direct democracy that they're going to decide policy by internet referendums. And so they've appealed to young people um, a lot. So it's a kind of eclectic panorama. 
But what it adds up to is the shift to the right and the abandonment of support of the, of the liberal. Now, now it was my understanding uh, leading up to this that Five Star, which is sort of ironic in a parliamentary system, uh, of all the parties you mentioned are, are, are least likely to want to form a coalition. How does that work? <laughs> yeah, Five Star has these two. It has these two sides. It has the kind of theoretical utopian side, which is its founders, uh, one of whom is a Casaleggio is his last name. He's an internet entrepreneur, and then Beppe Grillo, who's a kind of a sage who has a blog read by millions and millions. It's the most popular blog in Italy, and they are the purists, and they they advocate. You know, we have to stay true to our roots. Um, we shouldn't collaborate with anyone. And in fact, if we get to government, which we must do on our own, and we start to have our reforms, we must disband the movement. Um, they, they're, very, they're not very uh, practical. And so now we have as the actual head of the party a 31-year-old who has almost no experience, Luigi Di Maio. And he's, he's the one who's going to, in fact, you know, betray that promise. He's, of course, he's going to... Um, collaborate and form a coalition with other parties. He's talked about, you know, being soft on business, lowering taxes for business. Uh, he's also taken the a referendum that the founders wanted about whether um, the Italy Italians should stay in the Eurozone or not, and he's got that's off the table. So he's the, ref he's the one who's going to make sure that they can actually govern because it doesn't work. They, don't have, they didn't get over 40%, and so they can't govern by themselves. So we're going to see how politics will trump um, this kind of pure, pure principle. Now, now, leading up to this, um, did Five Star uh, and or the League um, – have a stellar record of, of governing at the local level? I'm, just, I'm trying to wonder, how did this shift occur? Yeah, that's a good question. So Five Star, it's important that Five Star only was founded in 2009. And the first election they participated in was the last national election, which was 2013, and they immediately got 25% of the vote. And this allowed them to have some pretty good successes in terms of getting people into office. So the mayors of Rome and Turin, which are big, you know, big city, of course, Rome being the capital, they are governed by five-star candidates. Now, their actual record has been very spotty, and there's been numerous scandals, the financial scandals, and, and other things as, as they've found that some of their um, some of their high lofty promises and principles don't really work uh, in government, and some have turned out to be just corrupt, even though Five Star, one of its big attractions is that it's the, it's the only party that keeps hammering about government transparency and anti-corruption, which is a big deal in Italy. That's why a lot of young people like them, because they're pro-environment, pro-transparency, they talk a good talk. So their actual record of governing is mixed, and the guy who's their head, Di Maio, doesn't have much experience at all. He never held a job before he was elected to parliament at 26 years old, and he's only 31. So it's not clear. <laughs> that, that part is not at all clear how it's going to work. And you, you touched on this uh, in, in one of your previous answers, but I want to be really specific about it. Do you see this as a precursor uh, that Italy might follow the uh path blazed by uh, the British in the Brexit vote in 2016? No, I think that the fact that um, the 
Five Star took the Euro referendum off of it, off the table because they had this big idea to let voters decide whether Italy should stay in the Eurozone or not. And, and we know what's happened with referendum in the past, including Brexit. So that's gone. And Berlusconi is adamant that they stay in the Euro. And Salvini is a politician. He's anti-Euro. There's people who are anti-European Union because of its principles. They don't like, they see it as an intrusion to national sovereignty. They, they see it as kind of international liberals interfering, right? There's this right-wing agenda. So that's the principle of it. Whether they actually exit, uh, like imitating Brexit, is very dubious. I, I don't see that happening. Now, through your prism of, of authoritarianism, um, does this election concern you in that regard? In terms of uh, actual authoritarian rule, one person in the short term getting an, amassing power, no, because if you see it's very it's very split. You know, in our country we have these two monolithic, huge parties, right, and it's easier for one person at least to have the aspiration like Trump does of trying to amass executive power. Italy, it's, it, the, the system was designed as a, quote, partyocracy right after World War II to, av to avoid that one person could ever amass executive power again like this. So I don't see that happening in terms of style of rule, but in, indubitably, there's a shift to the right. There's open racism. In fact, uh, the Italian press has been full of literally, you know, a few hours after the election, there was one racial killing where a white man killed a black man he thought was an immigrant just this morning. So, and, and the fact that Salvini preaches mass cleansing, this should be on the front page of newspapers. And yet it's not. It's just part of who he is. So that shift that can lead to kind of fascistic culture in Italy, I see that for sure happening. And um, make the connection, because I can imagine some, some of the listeners saying, well, well, Byron, why are you spending so much time talking about an election that happened some, you know, 5,000 yeah. miles away? Make that connection for us, if you would. Yeah, so the bottom line is um, that... Italy matters because it's one more chain in um, it's one more link in the chain of right-wing politics that Trump is part of. There's a reason Stephen Bannon went to Italy to support the league. Um, and there's a reason Salvini loves to have his photo taken with Donald Trump. The way that our country is shifting away from liberal democracy and the way that there's connections between Putin and this right, by the way, both Five Star and the League are very pro-Putin. So we, our country is, is part of this shift that's going on. Now, we and the, your listeners may not be of that persuasion, as, as neither am I, but it's, uh, you know, we, we have to recognize there is this shift that's going on, uh, and Trump, there's a reason Trump keeps admiring all these despots, all these authoritarian leaders, even to the point where he, his reaction to the Chinese head of state saying, you know, making, changing things so he can be president for life is that he jokes that perhaps we could try this here. 
or the both sides that yes even the even the you know white supremacists of charlottesville they're fine people too this is part of a major cultural political shift that our country is part of you know and i think it's important to note you you mentioned that um both uh the uh five star and the league are fans of Putin. So I'm, I'm wondering, Italy has been an ally of the United States since, what, 45? Uh, yeah. So, so uh, does that uh, concern you that that, that also becomes a, a shift in alliance? Um, yeah, it, 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 I am very concerned about that because um, the priorities are going to be different. It's it's hard to say because, you know, with Trump at the head, there's this admiration for Trump. And so in that sense, if Trump succeeds and he's already decimating the State Department, if over time he succeeds in remodeling the nation more, then there would be an ally, and Italy goes more to the right, and that becomes a consolidated thing. There would be a new kind of alliance between the U.S. and Italy, but not on democratic terms of the past. And that, that whole thing is very sad to me that in World War II, you know, men and women from Kansas and Iowa and places they'd never been perhaps to Europe, and they went over there serving the U.S. and to liberate uh, Europe from fascism. And now, look where we are. That, that is very sad to me. Um, and, and that is something that's been... Um, accelerated by the election of Trump. That was Professor Ruth Ben-Ghiat. Stay tuned for my closing remarks. But before that, here is an excerpt from Winston Churchill's famous Iron Curtain speech. This week marks the 72nd anniversary of that speech given at Westminster College in Fulton, Missouri. The importance of that speech is to symbolize the efforts of the Soviet Union to block itself and its satellites from open contact with the West and non-Soviet-controlled areas, ushering in what we now know as the Cold War. When the designs of wicked men or the aggressive urge of mighty states dissolve over large areas the frame of civilized society, humble folk are confronted with difficulties with which they cannot cope. For them, all is distorted, all is broken, all is even ground to pulp. When I stand here this quiet afternoon, I shudder to visualize what is actually happening to millions now and what is going to happen in this period when famine stalks the earth. None can compute what has been called the unestimated sum of human pain. Our supreme task and duty is to guard the homes of the common people from the horrors and miseries of another war.
And now for my closing remarks. The Second Amendment reads, A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. I don't often write about gun policy. It is especially difficult to write about it immediately following what can only be described as acts of absurdity. My infrequency to opine on the topic has more to do with the reflexive, linear, and non-productive manner that the issue is invariably embraced. How many times this decade have we seen this predictable movie? It begins with a brazen act of violence, multiple deaths, social media sending thoughts and prayers to the families of the victims. It is dominated by several news cycles. A useless gun debate ensues and a conclusion that leaves most unfulfilled. Like Alka-Seltzer, the effervescence of frustration bubbles at the top, but soon loses its fizz, returning to a quasi-normal state until the next sensational shooting. America's successful quest for independence was a primary motivator for the ratification of the Second Amendment. But is the Second Amendment, as it is currently understood, congruent with 21st century America? As the Declaration of Independence offers, governments are instituted among people deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed that whenever any form of government shall be destructive of those ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it. The Declaration suggests the people have the right to defend themselves against tyrannical government. Is that where we are today? I'm sure disciples of deep state conspiracy theories would offer we've passed that exit several miles ago. For the rest of us still willing to rely on reason, facts, and inquiry, the answer is no. But we shouldn't be afraid to periodically ask fundamental questions. What does it mean that the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed? Who is responsible for security of a free state? What is the definition of a militia in the 21st century? And how does one define well-regulated? The question is not how do we prevent the next mass shooting. That seems to be unreasonable for a culture that decided at its inception that freedom and guns were central to its ethos. The assault weapons ban, which was allowed to expire in 2004, was not designed to infringe on the Second Amendment, nor present itself as the final statement on the gun debate. The primary goal of that legislation was to reduce the frequency of mass shootings. According to the Washington Post, gun massacres, which was defined by six or more deaths, fell dramatically under the assault weapons ban. From 1984 to 1994, there were 19 such incidents resulting in 155 deaths. After the ban was enacted, the 10-year total declined to 12 incidents and 89 fatalities. 
Since the ban expired in 2004, there were 34 incidents and 302 deaths by 2014. And since 2014, half of the 10 deadliest mass shootings in American history have occurred. In its current configuration, the gun debate in the public discourse is designed to be a non-starter. It rivals our hackneyed discussions about race. America conveniently muddies the waters on race in order to avoid any discussions about class. Prudent conversations about class would be a game changer because it would replace the emphasis on biological differences with economic commonalities. Likewise, meaningful conversations about guns must begin with profits for gun manufacturers. How did the NRA go from an organization emphasizing the sportsmen to becoming the most ardent defenders of assault weapons? According to Business Insider, since 2005, gun manufacturers, many directly realized enhanced profits after the assault weapons ban expired, have contributed between $20 million and $52 million each to the NRA through the organization's Ring of Freedom sponsor program. Most Americans support the Second Amendment. They do believe, however, there are certain firearms that no private citizen should have legal access. An overwhelming majority support background checks and want better enforcement of the current laws. This is not some liberal outlier position. It also reflects the feelings among a majority of gun owners, according to a 2018 study conducted by Quinnipiac University. A 2015 public policy poll finds 72% of NRA members support background checks. So what should be the answer? Here is where my being a commentator has a decided advantage over elected officials. I can say without a reservation, I don't know the answer. The NRA knows emotionalism is temporary. They can weather the storm. The status quo ought to be unacceptable, but no one can agree on an alternative. We seem content to play two different games. One side declares check, while the other is feverishly attempting to purchase boardwalk. The sad truth may very well be the last cow has left the barn. America may have reached a saturation point and any legislation to curb assault weapon sales may be too little, too late. And that by no means places us on a path toward a more perfect union. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archived Broadcasts are located at our website, which is publicreality.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. And while on iTunes, leave a message. It helps our rankings. You can also follow me on Twitter as well as Facebook. My weekly column can be found in the Sunday edition of the Winston-Salem Journal as well as Politics NC. 
The Public Round is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Round, I'm Byron Williams.